Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. glad you're starting your day with us. Here are five things to know for this Wednesday, November 15th. Happening right now, the Israeli military carrying out an operation at the besieged Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza. There are reports of active firefights inside of that complex. We'll hear from the IDF live with us a little bit later this morning. And new hope this morning for a deal to release the hostages. President Biden says he, quote, believes it's going to happen. The remark came after he spoke with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Also, President Biden today set to have a high-stakes summit with Chinese President Xi Jinping near San Francisco. The goal, to keep tensions between the two powers from getting any worse. And it's now up to the Senate to prevent a government shutdown before the deadline on Friday night. The House passed its short-term measure yesterday. And new overnight, President Biden blasting Donald Trump for calling his enemies, quote, vermin. Biden telling donors the remark was, quote, language you heard in Nazi Germany. CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, happening right now, Israeli forces are in the middle, as we speak, of conducting a mission inside of Gaza's largest hospital. A Palestinian journalist who is inside the Al-Shifa hospital tells CNN there has been intense gunfire as Israeli soldiers search the complex and also interrogate young men. He says there are tanks in the hospital courtyard and the Israeli army is using bullhorns to tell people to come out and surrender. The IDF has accused Hamas of running a command center underneath that hospital and using civilians above as human shields. The Israeli military is calling this a, quote, precise and targeted operation based on intelligence. Thousands of civilians have been sheltering at this hospital and conditions have grown dire with food, water and power running out. Listen to this doctor. Describe the raid. We can't look through the windows or doors. We don't know what's happening. We can't tanks moving within the hospital. We can't hear continuous shooting that we have now. Uh, but again, it's totally scary situation. What are these sounds, doctor? I'm hearing sounds. It's continuous shooting from the tanks. The Israeli military says incubators, baby food, and medical supplies have now been delivered to the hospital, and medical teams and Arabic-speaking soldiers are part of the operation to, in their words, help protect civilians. This all comes, as President Biden says, a deal to release the hostages held in Gaza is, quote, going to happen. Hamas says the negotiations are focused on releasing 70 women and children in exchange for a five-day pause in fighting. Israel is pushing for at least 100 hostages to be released. We have team coverage live on the ground in Israel. Nada Bashir is in Jerusalem, and Oren Lieberman is in Tel Aviv. Oren, I want to start with you. This operation launched last night, still underway. What do we know uh, about how it's being carried out? 
The ground operation began in the early hours of the morning, and it continues to this point, according to the Israeli military. They say they are operating in a specific area of Al-Shifa Hospital based on intelligence they've received. They say that's where Hamas has essentially built its infrastructure and is using that part of the hospital. But take a look at the hospital complex. It is a massive facility in Gaza City, and we don't know exactly where in that facility they are operating. Again, they described it as a precise and targeted raid inside the hospital. According to an Israeli a senior Israeli military official, they've trained for this specific mission for a couple of weeks because of how specialized it has to be. And that includes Arabic speakers to work with and talk to hospital officials as well as patients and civilians. And then the training itself for how complex it is simply to operate in a military in a hospital uh, in the middle of, of what has been gunfights around the hospital and more. Israel has long accused Hamas of using Al-Shifa Hospital for its terror infrastructure. That senior Israeli military official says they have evidence as part of this operation into Al-Shifa Hospital that Hamas uses it. They say they will release that uh, in the coming hours or, or sometime later. So we will certainly want to see uh, the evidence that they have here because it's been such a central claim of some of the recent operations in and around Al-Shifa Hospital. Meanwhile, they called when they first made a statement about their operation, they are calling for Hamas to surrender. You know, Nada, we just heard in the reporting uh, from that Palestinian journalist um, the gunfire that the doctor was saying he was hearing as he was trying to continue to do his work in the hospital. But the IDF overnight came out with this statement and said that they have facilitated, quote, wide-scale evacuations of the hospital and maintained regular dialogue with hospital authorities. I know a lot of the patients are still there, though, right? Hundreds, it's believed. How are they being impacted? You're absolutely right. There are hundreds of patients stuck inside El Shifa Hospital, including hundreds as well of medical staff. And of course, there are many people, hundreds gathered outside civilians who are attempting to take shelter on the complex of the El Shifa Hospital. And as we have heard those warnings from medical staff for the last couple of days now, many of these patients cannot be evacuated in an easy or straightforward manner. They require specialist medical evacuations. And we've heard from doctors who have told us that in order to evacuate some of these patients. They will need more time and they will need security guarantees, which they haven't received yet. Some of these patients, they have said if they evacuate now, will die on the way. And that is the primary concern here. We have seen doctors at Al Shifa Hostel working under just challenging but horrific circumstances over the last couple of weeks. And these situations, these uh, the situation they are facing has really been deteriorating by the hour. We know, of course, that the Al Shifa Hospital is not able to operate as a fully functional hospital anymore. We saw those videos of premature babies being removed from the neonatal unit at the hospital because of the lack of oxygen supply. They were then taken to another part of the hospital, cuddled together, wrapped in blankets and foil to keep them warm. And we've heard today from a number of uh, human rights organizations and medical teams from across the globe expressing widespread concern over the ongoing situation. We heard uh, just a little earlier from the UN's uh, humanitarian chief, Martin Griffiths, describing the situation as a huge point of concern, but also uh, calling for hospitals not to be treated as battlegrounds. Poppy? Or in President Biden, Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke by phone. They've been doing that regularly since October 7th. But while the readouts of these calls are not exactly fulsome, you pay attention to the words. And in last night's readout from the White House, they said that President Biden and the Prime Minister discussed at length the efforts to free the hostages. That was a new framing of things. It's obviously been a focus. We saw the rally in Washington, tens of thousands, if not more people. You were marching uh, with the families and friends and supporters of hostages yesterday. What's the latest on the negotiations? 
It is very much a focus, certainly of the White House and also of the Israeli government, which has made it a two-pronged goal of defeating Hamas, as well as releasing the hostages. You're right, the conversation was at length, which is notable wording in a readout between President Joe Biden and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, but there are few details other than that. Negotiations are ongoing, uh, largely held uh, with the Qataris who communicate with Hamas, the CIA and the Mossad also involved in those conversations to try to make some sort of progress. Worth noting, Israeli radio reported earlier today that the army has not found evidence that the hostages were found at Al-Shifa hospital. So that part of the search continues as Israel tries to find some way to locate 239 hostages there. It's also worth noting that Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, whose uh, headquarters is right here behind us, he met earlier today with the White House's special coordinator for the Middle East, Brett McGurk. In that discussion, according to a readout of the call, uh, Gallant, the defense minister, told uh, McGurk that the operation would continue against Hamas until it's defeated and all the hostages are rescued. Orrin Lieberman, Nada Bashir, thank you. Well, just into CNN, in a matter of hours, FBI Director Christopher Wray plans to issue a stark warning that the Israel-Hamas war has, quote, raised the threat of an attack against Americans in the United States to a whole other level. Wray is set to speak before the House Homeland Security Committee. In his prepared remarks, he emphasizes law enforcement's efforts to root out potential terror threats to the U.S., saying that the FBI has, quote, kept our sights on Hamas and have multiple investigations into individuals affiliated with that foreign terrorist organization. Ray also says, quote, Americans should continue to be alert and careful, but they shouldn't stop going about their daily lives all across the country. The FBI's men and women are working with urgency and purpose to confront the elevated threat. Bobby. Today in California, high stakes meeting for the president. He will meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping. It is a summit there, an economic summit. They will meet on the sidelines. This sit down follows months of tension, to say the least, over a bruising trade war, a devastating pandemic, and escalation on the military front. U.S. officials say the main aim is to turn down the temperature and try to restore especially those military-to-military communications. CNN senior national correspondent David Culver joins us from San Francisco, where the meeting will happen. You have such unique perspective because you spent three years in China under Xi Jinping as president. So the stakes are very high. What is the key that you believe people should look for out of this meeting? And it's a daunting, too, Poppy, when you think about all the issues that have taken place, even since President Xi's last visit six years ago. I mean, the, the list, we can show you it. It's, it's just seemingly never ending. Any one of those on their own would be a major issue, yet you have them collectively and you wonder, well, where do you start? What do you prioritize here? The, the biggest focus, more than anything else, is creating global stability. No pressure, right? Yeah, that's tough, but that's certainly what many of the other 19 economies of the Asia-Pacific are going to be looking for as they're here for the other main event, of course, that being APEC. But if you have, for example, an agreement on a Chinese crackdown on fentanyl, if you have the reestablishing of military communications between the U.S. and China, if you even perhaps get something out of climate, that would be a win, no question. But these are very difficult things to come to an agreement on between the U.S. and China right now when you just see so much is is really going in the opposite direction more than anything else this is going to be about stopping the downward spiral mm-hmm. Poppy, it's something that we have seen over and over saying what almost feels repetitive and that they're at all-time lows but the low just keeps going yeah. down david what about particularly as it pertains to the war between israel and hamas how biden is expected to speak with xi about uh china's relationship with iran and russia He's going to want to leverage those relationships, right? I mean, he knows that China has a very cozy relationship 
with Iran, an even cozier one, if possible, with Russia. I mean, President Xi has called President Putin his best friend. Those are his words. And he's made multiple visits with Putin in recent weeks and months. And so the U.S. is going to likely heavily lean on that. The question will be if China will, will bring action to this, right? If there will be substance beyond just rhetoric. And that's what U.S. officials are obviously going to want to see beyond what happens here mm -hmm. today. David Culver, thank you so much. We'll watch for this critical meeting ahead. Phil. Well, overnight, President Biden responding to Donald Trump calling his political opponents, quote, vermin. Biden likening the language to the rhetoric of Nazi Germany. And Republican tension reaching quite a new peak in Congress. What a day yesterday. The verbal and physical smackdowns. Yep, that's ahead. President Biden hitting back at former President Trump for calling his political rivals vermin. You'll remember he did that in the speech over Veterans Day over the weekend. While speaking to donors yesterday, though, President Biden compared that comment from Trump to Nazi rhetoric. He said, quote, that is language you hear you heard in Nazi Germany in the 30s. With us now, CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avalon and former Obama administration official Sarah Feinberg. It's great to have you guys. Sarah, you know Biden. You were in the Obama White House. He does not sort of jump on every wild thing. Wild is an understatement right. that Trump says. But he did on this one. And I wonder why you think that is. That's right. He doesn't always take the bait. No. Um, but I think that I think he did on this because it's so specific and it's so offensive. And I think to not call it out is is to do a disservice. And so I think he did the right thing by calling it out. It would be nice if over the next couple of days we didn't have a debate about whether or not this was as offensive as we all know it to be. But if some people actually just turned away and said, you know what, I've had it. This is mm -hmm. enough. I can't do this anymore. Vermin is a step too far. But to that point, John, turning away or ignoring it or trying to downplay it or just not paying attention and saying he's crazy. I feel like we've done that for six or seven years and it doesn't have an, any effect. And so to the extent for Biden and the campaign, Last night was another night where after a fundraiser, I was talking to donors who were either there mm -hmm. or, or around the campaign, big supporters of Biden who say, if only we saw this on camera every day, we would feel very comfortable about the message. Well, that's entirely within the president and the White House's power right. uh, to start start playing offense in public and showing what people see in private around the president. And they should probably take that note uh, from, from his supporters. But, but I do think, look, th the problem is, is that Trump is degenerating into something uh, before our eyes that is far uglier and more dangerous historically than what we've dealt with in the past. It's not just the rhetoric that's authoritarian adjacent. It's the policies that he's proposing. It's the it's the threats and the vengeance. And it's not just like I'm, I'm you know, we should all be very, very cautious about Nazi parallels. Mm -hmm. um, but when, you know, NYU historian Ruth ben says, no, that's exactly the language of Hitler and Mussolini. The echoes are explicit. Then, then you got to say, okay, you know, we're heading into a dangerous place when that's paralleled the same weekend with talks of marshalling people into camps and mass deportations. Mm -hmm. uh, what, switching gears here, Joe Manchin did an interview with Nora O'Donnell on yep. uh, on CBS, and of course, she has the question at the front of everyone's mind, and that is, well, if you run as an independent, which he's not said he's going to do, but there's a lot of speculation, does that doesn't that affect cost one of the one of the frontrunners? Here's his answer. I don't buy that scenario. I've heard that, and, and I wouldn't buy that scenario because if you look back in history how things have played out, I don't think they thought Ross Perot would elect Bill Clinton. Now that we see this, some polls with, the, uh, with Bobby Kennedy Jr. would be helping, uh, would be helping uh, Joe Biden because it takes votes from Donald Trump.
Someone at the table, both people at the table know a lot about the history of all of this. John, let me start with you. Uh, is, is he right? Was the history tell us that? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, look, Ross Perot is a specific case where you can say he took from, from both candidates. Um, but just take a look at the other two cases of prominent third-party candidates, uh, you know, this century. Ralph Nader absolutely cost Al Gore the presidency. 97,000 votes in Florida. Bush wins by 537. Okay, that's the Green Party voters who thought that Al Gore wasn't good enough on the environment. Fast forward to 2016, Jill Stein, Green Party candidate, absolutely, her vote total was the differential for Hillary Clinton in three states. Um, you know, uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, so, which cost her the presidency. So, you know, th the problem is it's not about third parties per se. It's the stakes about this is a way that someone who's a very low approval rating like Donald Trump with a very narrow but intense base can win. And nobody can predict how not just a no labels candidacy particularly if it's headed by a Democrat, but Cornell West, Bobby Kennedy Jr., uh, you know, all those independent candidates impact the overall trajectory. Impossible to say. Sarah, uh, you are a resident West Virginia native. Um, <laughs> and also... Yeah. That's right. Uh, Ask me anything. Yeah. <laughs> I've spent so many years in Democratic politics, know all the players, know all the planning, know how campaigns operate. To John's point, it's not just will Joe Manchin run, it's Jill Stein is in, RFK, is mm -hmm. in, RFK Jr. is mm -hmm. in, Cornell West mm -hmm. is in. Uh, is the proper amount of attention being paid to those candidates? What should Democrats be doing right now? You know, in terms of all of those potential third-party candidates, the one I would actually worry about the least is Joe Manchin. Not because he can't get votes, but because I think of all those folks, he's the least likely to allow this to get to a point where he would cost uh, Joe Biden the election. Hmm. Because at heart, he is a public servant. This is someone yeah. who is, he certainly enjoys the spotlight. He's certainly struggling with the fact that I don't think he sees a path for you know, the reason he's not running is he didn't see a path for re-election in West Virginia. But ultimately, I do not think that he will allow the country to end up with Donald Trump because of him. Stick around, because we're not going to let you leave. And I like hanging out with you guys. <laughs> we'll get back to you in a minute. Uh, Congress now on the path to averting a rapidly approaching government shutdown after House lawmakers passed a stopgap bill on Tuesday. How's the Senate going to react? Plus, Congress turns into an episode of Jerry Springer. Seriously, it did. That was a great show, by the way, and one of the most bizarre days we've ever seen. You want to run your mouth? We can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Big oh, hold, stop it. Is that your right. solution? Every poll. No, no, sit down. Right, Eric, sit down. Okay. You know, you're a United States senator. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Choose your word, fiasco, circus, mess. This is your 
U.S. Congress at work, or maybe at war, Capitol Hill on Tuesday, more closely resembled a bad remake of Fight Club than two great legislative bodies. The House managed to pass a stopgap bill to avert a government shutdown, but it still needs approval from the Senate. That bill extends funding until the middle of January for priorities like military construction, veterans affairs, transportation, housing, and the Energy Department. The rest of the government, everything not covered in the first step, will be funded through early February. The bill doesn't include any additional aid to Ukraine or Israel. That's progress, right? Progress before a potential shutdown. But lawmakers managed to find plenty of time for what came off as nothing more than schoolyard antics. Phil, you have covered Congress for more than a decade. And I actually think it's the fact that you are no longer there, that they are all misbehaving. What I mean, happened? I think that is, if, I don't want to speculate, but I do feel <laughs> like that's not an unimportant element of all this. Look, Bobby, as you know well, it's often said Congress is a lot like high school. There's cliques, there's a cool crowd, there's the nerds and the wonks, there's the jocks. The place operates a lot like that awkward four-year window we all experienced in our teenage years. Not Poppy, but me at least. Over the course of, the la- of three hours on Tuesday, though, that reality was laid particularly bare. Let's start here. This is Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Tennessee Congressman Tim Burchett. They don't like each other. That's just true. In the lead up to McCarthy's ouster last month, Burchett thought McCarthy mocked his faith. That didn't end well for McCarthy. Why do we know that? Well, of the eight Republicans who voted to oust Kevin McCarthy, one of them was Tim Burchett. Now, McCarthy's verbal disdain for all eight of these Republicans hasn't been subtle. But according to Burchett and a reporter who witnessed what actually transpired, it turned physical on Tuesday when McCarthy walked by Burchett in a hallway and elbowed him in the kidneys. It's like a freshman year hallway dust-up. Now, to be clear, McCarthy denies anything intentional. No, I did not elbow him. No, I would not elbow him. I would not hit him in a kidney. HC5, you're all down there, right? Not a very big hallway. Not a very big hallway. Let's show you the hallway. That is a hallway. It's the hallway in the basement of the Capitol building. It leads into where House Republicans hold their conference meetings. It's a place where reporters stake out lawmakers. There were, in fact, more people in this space when the alleged altercation happened, but it wasn't packed, according to people there, including Tim Burchett. There's 435 congressmen. I was one of eight that voted against him. That hallway was, uh, there's plenty of room. You can walk four four side by side. He chose to do what he did. Good thing we're going to be joined by Tim Burchett a little bit later in the show. But that wasn't it. There's another one. Yes, there was actually a second one, and it may have actually been even worse. So who are these individuals? This was the equivalent, basically, Poppy, of the testosterone-filled locker room flex-off to some degree. Senator Mark you said it, Phil, of Oklahoma. That's what I've been told. I, I would not say that myself. It's Sean O'Brien, uh, who's a labor leader. Now, the scene was a Senate hearing on unions. That's where O'Brien's past tweets became an issue, including one in which O'Brien uh, called the Oklahoma senator a clown and added, you know where to find me, any place, any time. Well, you want to run your mouth? We can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Big oh, hold, stop it. Is that your right. solution? Every poll. No, no, sit down. Sit down. Okay. You know, you're a United States senator. Love Bernie Sanders, the peacemaker. Now, you'll notice Mullen reaching to take off his wedding ring yeah. in that clip. It's a classic pre-fight move. It's a move you might do at a bar late at night when you're making really bad choices. Not necessarily in a Senate hearing room. That, that's a new one. But unless it seemed like we're moving on from the teenage to adult years, the reversion to high school was quick. And it's not it, right, Phil? He made a lot of statements, right? 
and his statements are fiction at best. Fiction? I read them. Can you answer? What? I'll answer the question, please. I can't understand him, to be honest with you. All right. He rambles so much. I'm, I'm sorry, that's just that's funny. funny to some degree, but it's not exactly decorum for the world's greatest uh, deliberative body. Uh, quick note here, and I do think this is important to add. Mark Wayne Mullen uh, is not just a United States senator. He's probably the last guy you'd want to pick a fight with on Capitol Hill. He's uh, in the Oklahoma Wrestling Hall of Fame. He's also a trained mixed martial arts fighter. He actually has a 5-0 and professional MMA record. So You wonder if Sean O'Brien knew that before. Oh, you know. I think he did. Yeah, okay, there's that. But this isn't it. There's no. more. No, there's, there's a third, because we it's have to have three to have the trend. It wouldn't be high school, Poppy, without the cutting, if very petty, in-class personal invective, right? Well, for that, I present to you House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer and Florida Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz. Now, Moskowitz has been going after Comer uh, about his investigation into the Biden family on the House Oversight Committee in increasingly personal ways over the course of the last couple of weeks. On Tuesday, apparently, the de facto Democratic attack dog fully triggered the chairman. You and Goldman, who is Mr. Trust Fund, continue to try Recla to reclaiming my time. No, I'm Re not going to give you your time back. We can stop the clock. Re you all continue to. You look like a Smurf here, just going around and all this stuff. Now, listen, Mr. Chairman, you no, have. No, I'm you, tell you no, no, something. hold on. If we're you if we're not on time, we can disinformation. You, you, you. First of all, I love the Smurfs. But second of Richard. all. You were there for more than a decade covering yeah. Congress. Why is this happening now? There's so, three things yes. in one day. Smurf is new, the near physical altercation in a hearing, not something I've expected or have seen. But to be clear, I'm oddly passionate about Congress, about the institution. I take covering it extremely seriously, as I think you know well. But if they're going to act like clowns, I think on some level, at least in this moment, we should cover it like the circus. There is an actual explanation here. I think it's important to note this. The last two months on Capitol Hill have been an absolute mess. We've been yeah. covering it every step of the way. That means lawmakers have been in Washington a lot. Most don't have their families in town. There hasn't actually been much legislating or getting anything done. House Republicans have been engaged in a months-long nuclear intra-party war with themselves. People are annoyed. People are tired. People are irritable. As one House Republican texted me last night, everyone hates everyone right now. That wow. doesn't seem great. And that's why the new House Speaker said this about the soon-to-come holiday recess. This will allow everybody to go home for a couple of days for Thanksgiving, everybody cool off. Members have been here, for, as, as uh, Leader Scalise said, for 10 weeks. Um, it, this place is a pressure cooker. And so I think everybody can go home. We can come back, reset. So let's hope. Let's, let's hope. hope that they do some yoga and get take some deep zen. Breath, go home, deep see their families. I would note, it is not rare. This is an actual strategy that leaders take. Send their guys home yeah. because they understand people kind of hit their brink after three to five weeks. They were at 10 weeks. I'm not excusing this by any means. This is ridiculous, but people are fed up. Yeah, they need a break, yeah. clearly. Uh, we're going to be joined, as I said, by Tim Burchard. He's going to be with us on CNN this morning a little bit later in the program. We'll ask him all about what transpired there. Also this ahead, President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping, they'll sit down face-to-face -face in California today. It's a big deal with big consequences for the world. David Sanger with us ahead on all of that. And we are continuing to monitor the IDS military operation inside Gaza's largest hospital. We have live reports from the Middle East throughout the morning, and we will talk to an IDF spokesperson in the 8 a.m. hour. Stay with us. Well, just hours from now in California, a rare high-stakes sit-down between the leaders of U.S. and China. President Biden will be meeting with President Xi Jinping near San Francisco in their first face-to-face -face meeting in a year. 
Now, the summit is aimed at diffusing spiraling relations between the two countries. One CNN reporter describing them as, quote, a distrustful couple on the verge of divorce. Uh, that's not great. Let's bring in CNN political and national security analyst David Sanger. Uh, David, we're going to start with that low bar. Uh, U.S. officials have not exactly tried to raise it <laughs> over the course of the last couple of days <laughs> intentionally. Uh, what is the goal here when you talk to administration officials? What do they want to take out of this? I think the main goal uh, really is to just keep these two sides talking. And that doesn't sound like much, Phil, because in the uh, U.S.-China talks that I've covered over the past, I don't know, three decades, they usually focused a lot on things you could work on jointly, whether it was climate or whether it was North Korea or containing Iran or in 2008, 2009, jointly moving in to basically rescue the global economy. There's none of that on the agenda here. Uh, there was a very modest climate agreement reached by John Kerry uh, and his counterparts in the days ahead of this, but it doesn't actually require the Chinese to back off on uh, their burning of coal. Um, and you'll see a series of other relatively minor agreements, with the exception that probably the Chinese will commit to um, cracking down on uh, the export of the precursors for fentanyl, which has obviously been a, a very big issue. One of the, they did commit to that, too, though, with Trump, and we didn't see it happen. But you also have some interesting reporting, right. David, on artificial intelligence as it pertains to China's increasing nuclear abilities and weaponry. What, what, what would that be? What would that look like? Well, Poppy, this is really fascinating. So the U.S. and China have never had arms control talks. Mm. Remember, the Chinese, until a few years ago, kept what they called a minimum deterrent, a couple of hundred nuclear weapons, while we and first the Soviets and then the Russians had arsenals of thousands, and we're now down to 1,550 each. The Chinese are building up. And the U.S. has been trying for years to get, including during the Trump administration, to get the Chinese into arms control talks. They say, absolutely not. You know, when we have the same numbers you and Russia do, then let's talk. Until then, go away. But now they seem to actually be a little bit concerned uh, about the potential uses of artificial intelligence. And in quiet talks between Jake Sullivan and his counterpart, Wang Yi, the, the leading um, foreign affairs official within China, they have begun to discuss uh, the, the sort of very basic agreement that you would not allow artificial intelligence programs to be making decisions in your nuclear command and control. Sounds simple, sounds pretty sensible, probably more complicated than it looks, but I think you will see them come out of this with a, a joint panel that will begin to examine this. It's really a wedge into arms control. David, as you know quite well, we often get the most candid assessment of this administration from President Biden in fundraisers where cameras are not allowed. Uh, yes. A couple of times over the course of the last couple of months, he's cited China and talked about what I believe he's alluding to are their economic issues, right? And he did it again last night, saying they've got some real problems. U.S. officials seem to think that gives them some space. What does that actually mean, though? They, they sure do, Phil. And, you know, Obviously, China, in the years that we've been dealing with them in the past, has been growing at seven, eight, nine percent. And their overall attitude has been, you Americans are in terminal decline. 
Well, now all of a sudden they're dealing with growth rates that are probably below what we think the U.S. is going to end up growing at this year. Um, there are a lot of American officials who think this buys a little bit of time on Taiwan, a country that is growing that slowly, probably would not take the risk of the economic sanctions that would follow if they actually moved against Taiwan. Um, and so you just keep hearing President Biden time and again refer to this. I don't know if he's trying to rattle the Chinese. I don't know if he's just making an observation that the power dynamic has changed. But it's the first time the U.S. has dealt with a slow-growing China. And actually, some believe that a slow-growing China is more dangerous because she may decide that he really needs to sort of stoke nationalism more. David Sanger, thank you so much. Given all of the years you've covered China, we'll be watching what happens today. Great reporting. Thank you. Also this, eight Las Vegas teenagers now facing murder charges in the death of their classmate, and the attack was caught on video. We have those details next. And the man accused of attacking Nancy Pelosi's husband testifying at his own trial yesterday, what he told the court, and who else he said he targeted. That's ahead. Well, this morning, eight Las Vegas juveniles are facing murder charges in the beating death of a 17-year-old classmate earlier this month. Police say there was a fight in an alley near the school over a pair of wireless headphones and a vape pen. The videos that we have mentioned throughout this investigation and that you've seen reported in the media, uh, they're extremely disturbing. And this should be a reminder to all of us to have those difficult conversations with our children and remind them that their actions have consequences. Their actions have lasting consequences. Their actions have life-altering consequences. Now, the suspects here are 13 to 17 years old. Police and school officials are not giving details about what led up to the fight, but the victim's father tells CNN his son was trying to help a smaller friend who was being bullied. Well, tearful testimony packed with conspiracies from the man accused of attacking former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband in their home in San Francisco. David DePap spoke for more than an hour, spewing a barrage of conspiracy theories, many involving former President Trump. And this all comes more than a year after the 82-year-old Paul Pelosi was hit in the head with a hammer as police arrived on the scene. Our Veronica Miracle is following the trial and reports. What's going on, man? The man accused of attacking Paul Pelosi in his home tearfully took the stand in his own defense on Tuesday. David DePap testified when he brutally attacked Pelosi one year ago. Drop the hammer. Um, nope. Hey, 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 hey. What is going on He was in fact looking for then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. A remorseful DePap apologized for hurting Pelosi and said he feared for the then 82-year-old's life after hitting him in the head with a hammer saying, quote, I actually thought he was dead until I saw the charges against me and saw it was attempted murder. DePap's testimony revealed a man consumed by conspiracy theories. He started sobbing while claiming the media spread lies about former President Donald Trump and talked about believing one of his targets was promoting pedophilia. DePap also repeated to the jury what he told investigators about his true intentions behind his visit to then-speaker Nancy Pelosi's house. I thought I was going to basically hold her hostage and I was going to talk to her and basically tell her what I do. But if she told the truth, I'd let her go scot-free. If she died, that would have been very fast. 
Other targets on his list included Representative Adam Schiff, actor Tom Hanks, former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr, California Governor Gavin Newsom, and a university professor referred to only as Target One during the trial for her protection. Give me your hand. Give me your Paul Pelosi testified Monday his recovery after the attack is ongoing. One year later, he said he's managed to relearn how to walk, but still regularly gets headaches due to his skull fracture. DePap's defense team says he did attack Pelosi, a crime caught on police body cameras, but says prosecutors are wrong about DePap's motive, which they say is unrelated to Pelosi's official duties. This trial is on federal charges of assault on the immediate family member of a federal official and attempted kidnapping of a federal official. DePap faces decades in prison if convicted. The state case against him on charges of attempted murder, burglary and assault is expected to start later this month. Veronica Miracle, CNN, San Francisco. Well, Fulton County DA signaling a new timeline in the Georgia election subversion case. What that means for Donald Trump and his allies. Also, the IDF entering the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza. There are reports of tanks and active firefights inside that complex. We have the latest on the operation straight ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. I believe in that case there will be a trial. I believe the trial will take many months, and I don't expect that we will conclude until the winter or the very early part of 2025. That was Fulton County's Georgia DA, Bonnie Willis, warning it could take more than a year until her election racketeering case against the former president. Some of that his allies could wrap up. Now, if you're keeping track at home, that would be after the presidential election. So what does it actually mean for the case? What does it mean for Trump's presidential aspirations? Back with us to discuss, John Avalon and Sarah Feinberg. Um, we talk constantly about the calendar uh-huh. and how often he's going to be in court versus how often he's going to be on the trail and whether or not there will be uh, any resolution to any of these things. What's your take on what you heard last night? I think it ignores the practical reality that Donald Trump is running for president in large part to stay out of prison. Um, I think we need to say that stuff out loud. Think about the number of people clustered around him who would benefit from pardons from a sitting president, including potentially himself and his family. All the January 6th folks, he's pledged to uh, pardon. So when all of a sudden you say that you know, th- this, this racketeering you know, investigation into an attempt to overthrow an election won't be done until after the next presidential election, that has all sorts of assumptions baked in, one of which is that he's not the nominee and he doesn't win. Because otherwise, even though it's a state case, a lot of the stuff gets complicated and complicated. But now you bring up state case for a reason, because the sitting president can't pardon in Correct. a state case. So this was the one that a lot of people were looking at, and, and, um, and New York, the brag, but the dip, different level um, case, that you know there's a different bar there in terms of pardoning. The fact that she came out and said that, it would track with how hard it has been for them 
was for them to even seat a jury in the other racketeering mm-hmm. case that she's been pursuing in Georgia. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I think I, I think John makes a really good point. You have to say the part out loud, which is that, like, the whole point here is he's just trying to keep himself out of jail, right? And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that we're seeing his behavior deteriorate beyond even what we've seen in the past, right? Like, it's almost like there's an underlying panic now, whether it's vermin, whether it's these cases. It just sort of continues to spiral. Can I swing back to Capitol Hill for a minute, just because... Your old haunts? I, I love it. And I also, uh, I have a fellow Hill rat at the table. Again, that's not a pejorative. That's <laughs> what do you call him a rat? It's a compliment. It's a compliment. Veteran of the yeah. Senate yeah. and the House. Yeah. And I can't imagine you've ever seen it get that bad before. Is that a fair assessment of things? You mean two near fist fights yesterday alone? Yeah. yeah. No, I've never seen it get that bad. Why? Why do you yeah. think it... Is that like the politics now? Is it just because they'd been there for so many weeks in a row? I think it's so, I, I saw this stuff about they've been there for too long and like, you know, four weeks is the max and everyone needs to go home and take a, take a break. I mean, give me a break. This felt, it was just so performative. And I feel like if everyone could just walk into the United States Capitol every day or into their office on Capitol Hill and remind themselves, it's not about you. It's actually about your constituents. It's not about looking like, a man in the Senate committee hearing. It's not about, you know, threatening to beat somebody else. It, it's actually just about getting stuff done for your constituents. And we've completely lost that. It's so performative. It's embarrassing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a lot of playing to the cheap seats and kind of to get, get that, that addiction to attention. But it's also the downstream effect of Donald Trump, right? It's, it's about, you know, the new normal, particularly, you know, among some folks is threats, Intimidation, trying to act like a tough guy and get a lot of attention and presumably, you know, base love for for that kind of base activity. But it totally ignores the fact that act like a U.S. senator, because guess what? You are. It's not a bar at four in the morning. It's the Senate chamber at 11 in the morning. Don't threaten to be, you know, I don't don't blame the the teamster for pushing back. I blame the U.S. senator for acting like Mm -hmm. a total chump. And the same thing in this, you know, of all alleged altercation and kidney punches between two sitting congressmen where one accuses the other of, you know, being a bully who hides behind skirts. What the hell are we talking about here? Grow up. Act like someone who is a public servant, who has the public trust, who has the honor of serving in Congress under the Capitol Dome, mm-hmm. which is a civically sacred place. But instead, we've seen this sort of de- defining deviancy down, this degradation of our democracy, and they directly contributed to it. Yeah. And do they pay any consequence? It doesn't no, of course. Appear. Not. They probably raise more money. Yeah, I was just going right. to say. <clears throat> That's right. And while those arguments were going on on the Hill, and they're acting like children, there's almost 300,000 people on the mall marching because they feel like the political tone is getting to a point where it feels like the 1940s. That is a great point. That's the juxtaposition. Yes. That's the split screen yesterday. Mortifying. Yeah. Sarah, thank you so much. Good to have you. John Avon, as always. CNN This Morning continues now. Israel's carrying out a precise and targeted operation at the largest hospital in the Gaza Strip. We have intelligence and operational necessity in order to defeat Hamas and perhaps rescue hostages. It's a very complex operation. Thousands of people are still at this hospital. Negotiations underway to try to secure the release of some 240 hostages. I believe it's going to happen. President Biden suggesting China's economy has, quote, real problems ahead of his meeting with President Xi Jinping today. Relations right now are at their lowest point in at least half a century. What he wants to do is signal to the American people and signal to our allies that he is engaged with China in a responsible way. 
a government shutdown likely averted. Speaker Johnson had to rely heavily on Democratic votes to get this over the finish line. And apparently a few fist fights as well. Got elbowed in the back and I turned back and there was Kevin. If I would hit somebody, they would know I hit You look like a smurf here. Stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, We're looking at the impact of a party that is not a functional party. This place is a pressure cooker. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome. Happening right now, Israeli troops are carrying out an operation inside Gaza's largest hospital, Al-Shifa. A Palestinian journalist tells CNN there's been intense gunfire as soldiers search the complex and interrogate young men. The IDF just releasing this video, claiming to show soldiers delivering aid to the hospital's entrance. The Red Cross says reports coming in from the hospital are, quote, very worrying. The IDF has accused Hamas of running a command center, center underneath the hospital and using civilians above as human shields. The Israeli military is calling this a precise and a targeted operation that is based on intelligence. Listen to this doctor from inside the hospital. We can't look through the windows or doors. We don't know what's happening. We can't text moving within the hospital. We can't hear continuous shooting as we have now. But again, it's totally scary situation. So, what are these sounds, doctor? I'm hearing sounds. It's continuous shooting from the tanks. And thousands of civilians have been sheltering at Al Shifa Hospital. Conditions have grown dire in terms of a lack of food, water, or any power. Now, this all comes as President Biden says a deal to release hostages held in Gaza is quote going to happen. Hamas says the negotiations are focused on releasing 70 women and children in exchange for a five-day pause in fighting. Israel pushing for at least 100 hostages to be released. CNN's Oren Lieberman is live for us in Tel Aviv. Oren, I want to start on the operation that has been ongoing. What more do we know? What are the updates uh, in terms of where that stands? Phil, at this point, the operation inside Gaza's largest hospital, the Al-Shifa Hospital, has been ongoing for some 12 hours, starting in the early hours of the morning. The Israeli military says it's operating in a very specific part of the hospital. But take a look at this map, and you get a sense of how large the entire hospital complex is. They won't be any more precise about where they're operating or where they're looking for the Hamas terror infrastructure, they say, has been there and that Hamas has used as a command and control center. They do say they have evidence of that that they can't release yet, but will release at a later point today. A senior Israeli military official in a briefing with reporters a short time ago said they trained for a couple of weeks for this, a very specialized operation that required its own specific training to be able to work and function in a hospital. And that includes Arabic speakers to be able to work with the local staff, the doctors, the officials, and the civilian. Here is video the IDF released a short time ago. This is the IDF dropping off incubators, uh, baby food, and medical supplies to Al-Shifa Hospital. We've been able to geolocate it, but cannot independently verify what's happening on the ground because of the inability to report in Gaza. Meanwhile, we have known conditions inside the hospital have grown increasingly dire. On the example of the neonatal intensive care unit, a number of babies have died in recent days because they had to be pulled out of incubators, and the uh, officials there have tried to keep them warm with hot water and tinfoil. On the question of what exactly the evidence is that Hamas was using the hospital, at this point, the senior Israeli military official wouldn't be any more specific. When asked, does it show any tunnel shafts within the, pos- uh, within the hospital, uh, the, the military official refused to answer, and that's noteworthy because several days ago, the IDF put out what they called an illustration, a digital video of what they claimed are tunnel shafts that are in the hospital. So that is a key question. 
Yeah, no question about that. I also want to ask you, Oren, about the hostages. There have been, I feel like there's been an uptick in chatter and then it ebbs over the course of almost every day for the last two weeks. Last night, President Biden, Prime Minister Netanyahu having yet another phone call in which this was a central, if not uh, the priority issue that was discussed. We saw the huge marches in Israel. You were marching uh, with the hostage families uh, and supporters. We saw the huge uh, gathering of individuals in Washington, D.C. Do we know anything about what is going to happen next with these negotiations? Right now, it's more hints and reports here and there. Nothing definitive that says that a hostage release or exchange will happen. But as you point out, President Joe Biden appeared to express some optimism and Hamas appeared to say the framework is there. 70 hostages or so in exchange for a number of days of uh, a pause in the fighting. So the framework appears to be in place, but whether it's able to get over the line, that, of course, is a key question. The other, the other question right now with the Shifa hospital raid going on, does that affect the willingness on either side to go for hostage negotiations? Meanwhile, at the same time, Israeli radio reporting, according to the army, that they found no evidence of the hostages in Shifa hospital. So that search is ongoing. At the same time, the defense minister here, Yoav Gallant, met with Brett McGurk, the White House's special coordinator for the Middle East. He said the operation would continue until the hostages were rescued and Hamas was defeated. So there appears to be some optimism that a hostage exchange or some sort of deal may be possible. But if that can get over the line, that's still an open question, Phil and Poppy. All right, Oren Lieberman live for us in Tel Aviv. Thank you. And joining us now, CNN Chief International Anchor Christian Amanpour. And Christian, let's begin with that important question that Oren just posed. Does this operation, Israel going into this hospital in this way, while there are still patients there, that the IDF says, look, we told them to evacuate, we tried to help them get out. Does that change the hostage negotiations that seem, according to President Biden, to be making progress? Well, hard to say exactly as Oren pointed out, that if it can happen, great. If it doesn't, well, who knows? And actually, I interviewed Mark Regev, and he is, as you know, Netanyahu's international spokesperson. And I asked him about what Biden had said. And he said, well, we'd love it, but we don't see any indication of any release mechanism happening right now. And on top of that, he said, if there was to be, it's because of the pressure we're putting on Hamas. But of course, they've been putting that pressure on Hamas since uh, October 7th and since those terrible slaughters in Israel. And hostages have not been released except for a small handful. So that is not working. And when I asked him, as Oren has asked, what is your intelligence information about what's under al-Shifa, where are the hostages, where is uh, the main Hamas leader? Yoav Gallant said that Yahya Sinwar was hiding in his bunker. So I said, well, where? If you know, why don't you close in on that? And there are no answers to any of these questions that they are willing to give. So we're not sure about the strategy. What we do know over here is that it is being seen very, very grimly by Israel's allies, not only neighbors in uh, literal neighbors like in Jordan. Mm -hmm. And let me read for you what the king of Jordan has said. In the name of our common humanity, how can such brutal acts and murders be accepted? Today's human suffering and global tensions urge us to adhere to the norms of humanity before we all reach a moral breaking point. It's a very pointed message from the king of Jordan who has a piece of 
you know, deal with Israel. In the UK here, again, a very close Israeli ally, the British government, there is going to be a very highly charged debate in Parliament tonight about the matter of a ceasefire. The French president has called on a ceasefire and they really want to see at least five days, at least some kind, like the IRC, the refugee organization has called for some kind of meaningful ceasefire to really relieve the unacceptable pressure on civilians in Gaza. Right now. I'm so glad you brought up that what the King of Jordan, King Abdullah, said, because in this Washington Post op-ed, he also says this. Israelis cannot continue their lives as usual, expecting security solutions alone to ensure their safety. While Palestinians live in misery and injustice, he goes on to write, with no political horizon, the promise of a peaceful future will evade both Israelis and Palestinians. The key question of how does this end and a two-state solution that the United States continues to press for what is the significance of him writing this? Well, it's a huge significance because he's obviously Jordan, Egypt and other allies, including Russia, China, the whole uh, P5, Permanent Five at the Security Council, Europe, everybody has signed on to the notion and they continue to adhere to it of a two-state solution. And this is getting more and more difficult to envision because the current Israeli government is essentially made up of, a, of, of very strong settlers, settlers mm -hmm. who are really the driving force at the moment, it's considered, and who have increased the settlements, particularly over the last few years, in the occupied West Bank. So there are 700,000 or so settlers there, which make it very, very difficult to hang on to the notion of an independent Palestinian state in the occupied West Bank. But that is still the aim, even though mm -hmm. Both Palestinians and Israelis are really questioning that entire concept because it has failed, because it hasn't been implemented. Neither the United States, nor Israel, nor any of those around uh, the, the Oslo Accords have actually implemented something that the Palestinians back then agreed to, which was to recognize Israel in return for uh, a state. And then, of course, you've had the intervening violence, and it's all gone mm -hmm. You know, it pretty much went off the boil. As you yeah. know, the U.S. administration took its eye off the region until it was now forced to put its eye back on. But this is the question. What happens next? Can we turn to a critical meeting today in the United States between President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping? Very, uh, Xi Jinping is coming to this country under very different circumstances, certainly more tense between the U.S. and China than his last visit here. You had this great, I think very revealing and telling interview recently with Gina Raimondo, the Commerce Secretary, who had just gone to China. And she talked to you, Christiane, about the economic ties between the two that are key as being a ballast, she hopes, for the rest of their relationships. I want to play what she told you and then get your thoughts on the other side. I think they have a desire and we have a desire to stabilize the relationship. You know, in my case, when I met with my counterparts, we talked about using the economic relationship as a ballast for the rest of the relationship. You know, we have to protect what we must, but trade where we can. You know, it's, it's time to uh, ratchet down the temperature and look to, I think the world, truthfully, Christiane, is looking to the U.S. and China to be responsible in managing this relationship. So then, Christian, coming out of this meeting, what is the best possible outcome for the world, for global stability? 
The best possible outcome, as she said, is to lower the temperature. I asked, are we going to see a war in Taiwan on top of all these other wars uh, that we're seeing? And she said, I don't think so, and I don't think the Chinese want to see that. The best possible deliverable is, in fact, the meeting between the two presidents. Mm -hmm. They have not had a significant meeting at all, at all, in, in, in President Biden's pr uh, presidency. So it's very important that they actually meet together and, and deal with what they can deal with. As she said, the economic is very, very important and it's very you know good that she was on our program because of all the um, of all the main issues between uh, China and 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 the United States economy and commerce matters make up the majority of them which is under her purview basically yeah that's right it's a great interview very telling ahead of today Christian thank you very much well, as Poppy was just noting, China's Xi Jinping is set to meet with President Biden in just a few hours. What the White House is hoping to achieve from the summit, that's next. Watch your back. Republican Congressman Tim Burchett accusing his former party leader of elbowing him in the kidneys on purpose. Kevin McCarthy says that's not true. Burchett joins us. Well, as we've been discussing, President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping are set to meet in a high-stakes summit later today. It comes after months of tension between the two nations. CNN senior national correspondent David Culver tracking it all from San Francisco. Thank you, everybody. Sharing a sofa and a smile at Mar-a-Lago. Serenaded by former President Donald Trump's grandkids. Singing in Chinese for visiting President Xi Jinping. The blossoming, it seemed, of a new friendship, and with it, closer ties between the U.S. and China. I think long term, we're going to have a very, very great relationship, and I look very much forward to it. Not quite how the story played out. In the six years since Xi's last visit to the U.S., U.S.-China relations have plummeted to all-time lows. They must play by the rules. The issues? Where to begin? A bruising trade war, a devastating pandemic. It came out of China. Rising tensions in the South China Sea. Growing threats from Beijing over its goal of unifying with Taiwan. And amidst Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine, an alarmingly cozy Xi and Putin relationship. In the war between Israel and Hamas, China refusing to condemn Hamas. President Xi's first trip to the U.S. was 1985 as a local Communist Party official taking in the sights. Today, he's China's most powerful ruler since Mao, demanding near total control over a population of 1.4 billion people. Xi now returns to an increasingly divided United States, something Chinese state media repeatedly highlights in its propaganda. But if there is one topic that consistently unites Washington, it's being tough on China, a sentiment bolstered by the downing of a suspected Chinese spy balloon earlier this year. They're testing us. They're mocking us. They're trying to embarrass us. China has its own issues. After years of record growth, the world's second largest economy is struggling. Its housing market in crisis, youth unemployment at record highs. And for the first time in 25 years, a deficit in foreign direct investment. International companies increasingly uneasy putting money into China, in part because of Beijing's unpredictable crackdowns. The U.S.'s reputation has also taken a hit in China, fueled by state media's anti-West messaging and nationalistic posts on China's tightly controlled social media. Ahead of the summit, rising skepticism towards U.S. intentions, 
One Weibo user posting that this is a U.S. delaying tactic. Its strategy of containing China won't change, but only intensify. Another posting, anyone who thinks that China-U.S. relations will become better is simply naive. It's just your wishful thinking. Many in China supporting Xi's proposed New World Order, one that's not led by the U.S. The U.S. now hosting this high-stakes West Coast meetup with low expectations on the outcome. No more love seat for the leaders of two superpowers. Instead, both on a hot seat with the world watching if they can tamp down tensions. And this morning, Chinese President Xi Jinping being portrayed by his country's state media as getting a warm, heroic welcome even, Phil, here in San Francisco. They've been showing several of the images that we actually were hearing firsthand. In fact, yesterday we were reporting here, heard crowds gathering, heard chanting, recorded music blaring from speakers with nationalistic Chinese songs being broadcast. So producer Yongsheng ran over there, captured some of these images, and you can see big groups coming together. It looks impressive. They have huge Chinese flags that happen to be also blocking some of the anti-China protesters who were out there. They were being drowned out by what seemed to be very patriotic Chinese nationals. We've learned that many of them were bussed in from Chinese uh, students being part of U.S. universities. And so that's what made up most of that crowd. Shows you the optics are important for China. Incredibly, as U.S. officials have made clear over the course of the last couple of days. David Colvert, thank you. That's fascinating. All right, ahead. Coming up, words that you probably haven't heard from a former House speaker. No, I did not elbow him. No, I would not elbow him. I would not hit him in a kidney. The man, Kevin McCarthy, talking about Republican Congressman Tim Burchett, says otherwise. He joins us live next with his side of the story. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Congressman Kevin McCarthy, the former speaker, accused of elbowing in the kidneys one of the eight Republicans who voted to oust him as speaker, Congressman Tim Burchett. The alleged incident happened Tuesday morning outside the GOP conference meeting while Burchett was talking to a reporter. The reporter captured the audio of the aftermath. I think it went all right. Sorry, Kevin, didn't mean to elbow. Why'd you elbow me in the back, Kevin? Hey, Kevin, you got any guts? Jerk. So they sit there and the reporter said it right there. What kind of chicken move is that? You're you're pathetic, man. You are so pathetic. What a jerk. You need security, Kevin. Now McCarthy denies he intentionally elbowed the congressman, but the back and forth between the two continued. It was a clean shot to the kidneys. You just don't expect a guy who was at one time three steps away from the White House to sucker hit you with a sucker punch in the in the, in the hallway. No, I would not help him. I would not hit him in a kidney. Run and hit the guy. I did not kidney punch him. I did not shoot anything like that. You didn't shove him. No. Well, tensions are clearly still high in the Republican Party since McCarthy's ouster as speaker last month. And this all happened just hours before some positive news. The House actually passed a bill to avoid a government shutdown relying primarily on Democratic votes. Republican Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee joins us now for his weekly check-in that we have begun to colloquially refer to as Breakfast with Burchett. Uh, I'm going to be honest, every week something new seems to pop up before our conversations. This was slightly unexpected. Uh, What's going on, man? I don't know. It was... uh, um 
Claudia Grisselles, she's, uh, you can follow her Twitter. She actually tweeted about it, see Grisselles. I think it has like almost 8 million views on her, on her Twitter or X account or whatever you want to call it. We just standing out there after, after conference and I always, um, I talked to the press and she was interviewing me and, you know, I fell forward and after Kevin popped me in the back and, you know, and then he just kept walking with his security detail. And it really, it's just a sad commentary on him and, and his spiraling Can uh, I ask you about that? Leadership. And, and sure. you're referring, Claudia, as an NPR reporter. We were playing her sound uh, as the congressman notes. She's on Twitter. She's uh, a great reporter. The, yep. Whatever has happened between you and the speaker, former speaker, uh, in part because of you, does it just go back to when you thought he was being condescending in a phone call before you voted to oust him? Is there something deeper here? Why are you at this point with him right now? Yeah, I have no idea. It's a really a bizarre thing that just what just happened. I, I'm sure right after he did it, he regretted it, you know, and I've, I've moved on. I've got no vengeance towards him. I, I prayed for him this morning, as a matter of fact, because I know he's hurting, even though he does have $17 million in his account to play mischief in everybody's campaigns, which he's frequently said that he'll do. So I, you know, I, it's just a sad commentary on his life, and I'm and I'm sorry for him. I really am. I feel sorry for him because would you like this is to, not uh, the way to go out. Would you like to see him leave and resign? I, I don't care what he does. Really, it doesn't matter. He's the sooner he leaves, though, the sooner he'll be making seven figures being a lobbyist. I mean, let's let's be honest. He's not going back to Bakersfield. Um, let's just be honest about that. He'll be lobbying up here and, and making big money. And that if, if he feels like he doesn't have a shot back to the speakership, and I suspect after Mike Johnson's uh, deal last night, he won't be back. I want to ask you about the, the new speaker and what happened yesterday yeah. in a second. But, but quickly, I want to go back to a conversation we had out in front of the Capitol shortly before uh, Kevin McCarthy was ousted where you talked about that phone call uh, that you thought he was condescending in terms of when you were talking about uh, how you were praying over the vote. I, I want to play what you said. I've got a recording of what was said. It was... Oh, you, it, re it, you recorded it, it? It was just... But it was between us. And, um, you know, and, and... But the conversation went on in a, in a belittling tone. The reason I swing back to that is, one, you haven't given me the recording yet, which is to some degree frustrating, um, but, but, and you're more than welcome to at any point. Uh, but two, okay. you clearly had an idea or had some issues leading into that phone call that made you want to do that. What was yes, that? Yes, I did. What, what made you want well, to do that? Well, um, obviously, um, us taking off six weeks uh, prior to the budget, you know, they're saying, well, Mike Johnson just had two weeks. Well, Kevin McCarthy had since January, and he waited to the last two weeks. And we took off um, August through September, uh, two weeks into September. So six weeks right up to the budget deadline of September 30th. And then when I asked him about it in that, in that phone conversation, well, he said, well, that's Steve Scalise's job. He sets the calendar. And, you know, it was just always somebody else. And I said to him, I said, you know, do you think Nancy Pelosi would have said that? I, heck no, she knew where every paperclip was up here. You know, and, if, and it's just, it just got to the point. I mean, he was, he was on the news, he was on the Twitter, he was on everything else, meeting with the superstars and everything, but he needed to be here leading. And that's what we need in this country. We need leadership. And frankly, he wasn't given it. And then when he demeaned me about, I said I was gonna pray about it. I, I said that on CNN yeah. and you know, and I guess he saw y'all. And you know, I don't, 
listen, I'm, I'm a, I'm a born-again Christian. I'm, I'm not apologizing for that, but I'm not out proselytizing. Some of my best friends up here are not of the Christian faith. Right. Um, and, and, they're, and, I, and I love them dearly. But, you know, I'm responsible for my wife and my daughter and myself. And that's it. And, I, and, you know, and then for him to belittle that to me, I just showed his character. And then yesterday in the hall, I think that was the cherry on top as far as his, his character, brother. And um, it's just a sad commentary on him and not on, any, not on Congress, not on the Republicans. I do want to ask you before I let you go, um, the House passed a, a two-step CR. You are very opposed sure. to CRs. You've made that repeatedly clear. Uh, tell me why there won't be more CRs come January and February. I don't know that there won't, but Mike Johnson, I, I support Mike Johnson. I just don't support the CR. He had two weeks to, to cobble something together, and that was as close as he could get. And, um, and the staggered approach, we're not, we're not forcing it down our throats all at once. And so that will allow us more discussion on the issues, and I think the public will see that instead of just one conglomeration of this massive trillion-dollar spending extravaganza that we go on every year at taxpayers' expense. And he understands that we're $33 trillion in debt. And he also understands Jody Arrington chairs the, um, uh, the budget committee, and he right. said more than once publicly, we need a budget. And that is exactly what liberals and conservatives should ask for, because here's what happens. You pass these humongous budgets, right. and nobody knows what's in them except for the lobbyists and the leadership in both parties. And they all get up there and fight and, you know, and, and, and bruise right, right. each other. But the reality is all they see is green. And that's why the American public needs a budget, liberals and conservatives, so we know exactly what's in that dadgum budget. It'll certainly and that's, be. That's what we need. Yeah, it, and it's certainly going to be the discussion when you guys get back from recess. I think everybody needs to go on recess. Congressman, we always appreciate you uh, in these conversations. Again, my inbox is open for that tape. If you ever want to pass it along, uh, we appreciate right you, sir. On. Thank you. Have a great Thanksgiving, brother, if I don't see you. You too. I think you're going to get that. Mattingly. We'll wait for that tape. Meantime, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is rising in the polls, now catching, though, backlash over a new controversial so social media proposal, what she said that had her rivals pouncing. Bircher was just vigorously shaking his head no, Poppy. And a new okay. report advising parents to look beyond report cards to measure their child's progress. What it says about grade inflation. That's next. Okay, you might be a parent waking up with your kids, getting them ready to go to school, and you might be like one of so many parents in the country getting ready to read your kid's report card over the next couple of weeks. But there's new data that suggests that traditional letter grade may not be the best measure of a child's progress in the classroom. Our correspondent, Athena Jones, tracking this all. That is that is great news for kids who are trying to explain those some of those grades to their parents. Sure, but, but here's the bottom line of this, this study, this report that was done with nearly 2,000 parents of K through 12 public school students. They found that the majority of parents rely on report cards to give them a good sense of their child's academic progress, but that, the report cards aren't telling the full story. Yeah. They need to look further than that. Part of the reason they're not telling the full story is because Bs don't mean what parents think they mean these days. And so I want to take a look at, we have some graphics to show you the disparity, the disconnect mm -hmm. uh, between, between um, report cards and actual performance. So nearly nine in 10 parents think their child is on grade level for reading and math. Mm -hmm. Nearly 80% say their children receive Bs or better. And even 36% of parents who say they know their child is below grade level say that those children still are getting mostly Bs or better. So that gives you the first kind of instance of the disconnect. Here we see the national report card showing actual academic achievement in 2022. You would think that a B and up 
would mean proficiency, but in fact, only about a third of fourth graders and eighth graders were proficient in reading, and 36% of fourth graders in math, only 26% wow. of eighth graders in math. So getting a, you might get a, see a B on the report card, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily mean they're proficient. Parents need to look deeper. And one more important area, and that is college readiness. This is another area where perception and reality do not match. The perception is 61% of parents are very or extremely confident their child will be well-prepared for college. But when it comes to actually meeting college readiness benchmarks via the ACT test, only 40% of 12th graders were deemed ready in reading and just 30% of 12th graders deemed ready in math. So parents need to be asking a lot more questions. Yeah. And it seems like some great inflation, obviously. Absolutely. And the tools need to change for parents to measure their kids, how they're doing in school. They've got to ask more questions. They've got to have a, a partnership, a relationship, yes. an ongoing conversation with the teacher, checking in with them about how their children are performing on in-class assignments, tests, quizzes, homework, in addition to the benchmark exams and different subjects yeah. that happen throughout the year and, and statewide tests. So a lot more measures than a report card. A lot. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Overnight, President Biden taking aim at former President Trump's comments when he called just a couple of days ago his political rivals vermin. Plus, name-calling fistfight challenges and allegations of throwing elbows into kidneys. Why is Capitol Hill beginning to look a lot like a Jerry Springer episode? We're going to discuss. Stay with us. Okay, sit down, please. All right, can I respond? President Biden responding to this comment from Donald Trump calling his political rivals vermin. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country, that lie and steal and cheat on elections. Speaking in front of donors last night in California, Biden likened Trump's comments to, quote, language you heard in Nazi Germany in the 30s and warned his likely 2024 presidential rival will use another term in the White House to exact, quote, revenge and retribution. Joining us now, Jim Messina, former Obama campaign manager and White House deputy chief of staff under President Obama, and Mark McKinnon, former advisor to George W. Bush and John McCain and co-founder of No Labels, a centrist political organization that is actively considering running a third-party candidate in 2024. Guys, thanks for joining us. Jim, I actually want to ask you what I asked you during the break, <laughs> which is at the fundraisers, you see uh, a Joe Biden who is, has a sharp political message, uh, is willing to attack Trump, doesn't avoid it, doesn't only talk about the, the policy achievements, which there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's not the same conversation. It's not the same messaging that you see from him publicly. Uh, do you think that changes at some point soon? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But right now, his most important thing is he needs to do is explain to the American public what he's done in the economy, what his vision for the future is. And then once there's a nominee of the Republican Party, then you take that fight. But right now, he's got to make the case about what he's done. And I think they're doing that. Uh, and next year, it'll be time to go right at Donald Trump. Jim is not worried about Biden's prospects. He, in fact, has a frame photo in his office of a 2011 headline saying yep. the Obama campaign was toast. But my question to you is, can you really make that comparison right now? Not only was Obama decades younger, he was running. He wasn't running against Trump. I mean, he just wasn't running against someone that was such a hard to totally figure out, extremely loyal base. Listen, Jim's job is to keep the bedwetters dry, and I understand that. And there are some historical parallels, but the point you're making is a really good one. There's some parallels that, that simply don't match up at all. And the most important one is that Obama wasn't 80 years old. 
And, and people have life experiences with people who are 80 years old. You can't be a park ranger in America if you're 66, is much that, less be running the, the country. So that's a well, fundamental you would know, given where you live. And given how old I am. <laughs> so, uh, so but, but, but Jim's right, too. At the end of the day, it's going to be a choice. And it's likely going to be Biden, and it's likely going to be Trump. And when you stack those up, you've got, yeah, you've got an old guy, but you've also got a guy who's 91 counts, four indictments, and, and pretty old himself. So, uh, you know, it, it, by next summer, we're going to clear away a lot of this clutter, and, and the choice is going to be a lot clearer. Jim, to that point, I, actually, I want to game that out, because I think it's important to note uh, people are always saying, why are we doing this now? Why isn't this? There, there are, there's a strategy in there, I think, phases to how the campaign uh, is operating based on my conversations with Biden folks. Uh, I will say they've made a huge investment a lot earlier than I was expecting. Uh, walk people through what those phases would be. Yeah, so the very first phase is what you just talked about, which is the economic narrative and what he's doing. And he's doing a $25 million buy in the seven battleground states right now talking to swing voters about what he's done. The second phase is making sure his base is rock solid. He has historic spending right now in the African-American, Latino, and young communities to shore up that base, to make sure they understand the choice that Mark's talking about uh, and what he's actually done and make sure the turnout's going to be. Because you have the best point, which Trump has historic turnout in both times he ran. And so it's incumbent on Team Biden to make sure their base is rock solid. And that's what you do in the off year. Because, you know, you can go after Trump every day, but that's like sugar candy, right? It feels good, but in about an hour, you have a little hangover from it. And the reason why is you've got to have your own message. And that's the hard part about American politics. It just can't be an anti-Trump message. Hillary tried that in 2016. It doesn't work. And Team Biden is not going to make that mistake again. Can you come to my house and tell my children about the after effects (laughs) of too much sugar candy, please? I'm here to help. need that right now. I gave up last night. They had like 10 Good thing you're the executive producer of The Circus, because you can weigh in on what the heck is happening with the Republican Party on Capitol. It's not just the Republican Party, excuse me. Two Republicans, Burchett and McCarthy. But then look what we saw play out. uh, Like the fist fight almost happened between the labor leader and the senator. Then there's Moskowitz and Congress. They have have clawed their way to the bottom. I mean, I I think that uh, Mike Johnson must feel like Kevin McCarthy gave him the keys to the gates of hell right now. Uh, and we were talking earlier about that. Who would want a job in Congress right now? Uh, and it's so dysfunctional. And this is a big part for the, pro- the problem for the Republican Party, I believe, because they've caught the car. And so much of what they've been doing is about we're going to shut down government, we're going to do this, we, and, and, you know, this, that on abortion. Now it's like they get to a point where they realize, you know, shutting government down really isn't very popular. Banning abortion really isn't very popular. So all these things that they've but now they're you know, they've been backbenchers for so long. And now they actually have the reins and it's problematic. Um, guys, stay with us. Can I just say, we're not, yesterday was so insane, we haven't even talked about a Republican member of Congress who tweeted that one of her male colleagues did not have certain parts of their male anatomy. Yeah, that's true, Phil. With emojis. We, we haven't done that on this Which morning. I know is disappointing. On this morning that program. Was, but that's how bad it was. All right, guys, stay with us. We'll bring you back in a sec. It's true. We also ahead and want you guys to weigh in on this. have some really interesting reporting that uh, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon has been talking to Nikki Haley several times and... He's impressed by her. We'll talk about that ahead. And happening now, IDF forces are inside Gaza's largest hospital. The latest developments on that ongoing operation. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, welcome back. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley drawing praise and attention from one of the most powerful men on Wall Street. I'm told by 
A source close to the matter, the J.P. Morgan CEO, Jamie Dimon, has spoken with Haley several times in the past couple of months. He views the former South Carolina governor as smart, thoughtful and more moderate, someone who he thinks could be good for this country. I'm told this is not an endorsement of Haley, but Dimon believes, quote, this country needs good policy. And he thinks she's very smart and holds her in high regard. Also, our reporting on this is it, it doesn't mean Jamie Dimon is no longer a Democrat, quote, he just wants what's best for the country. But this is just another sort of peg in the rise of Nikki Haley that we've seen in this race so far. Look at her gaining in key early states. Made her a distant second, though, still to Trump and a target among her rivals. As New York Times opinion writer Catherine Miller recently put it, quote, she ran campaigns that nobody thought much of until unexpectedly, suddenly she was winning them. Is that what's happening here? Is it real? Back with us, Jim Messina, who is nodding his head. Also, I'm sorry, Mark McKinnon is nodding his head and Jim Messina is back with us. So, Mark, let me start with you. Um, she just responded to what uh, what that source says that Jamie Dimon said about her saying, look, we had a phone call. We talked about death, the economy. And he said and she said, we'll take it. We'll take it. Yeah. Listen, just another sign and a long series of good things happening for Nikki Haley. All three debates, you could argue she won. Uh, she's Tim Scott's dropped out. That helps her. Jamie Dimon's back meeting with her. That's a good sign. Lots of things happening helping for her. I've said for a long time she's the last best hope for anybody to take on Trump. It's unlikely, but it's possible. And here's how she does it. She just she, all she's got to do is run a strong second in Iowa, I think, which I think is very possible. Now, then she wins New Hampshire, which I think is very possible. And she's very likely to win South Carolina. That would be a pretty good string to, for suddenly to be a man who would be king moment where suddenly Trump's base sees he's bleeding. And it's like, oh, my God, maybe there's trouble here. I, I would like a, I, the path. And he's Messina, and and she's Messina's biggest nightmare as a general. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Is that for true? Sure. I mean, today. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But look, I think the chance of her being the Republican nominee are about the same as Mark. Like it, he, she trails by 45 points nationally. She trails in Iowa by 27 points. And, you know, we forget who she's up against. Donald Trump, the single best counterpuncher in the history of American politics, who hasn't even started to train on her yet, because to Mark's point, she hasn't cleared the field. She still has DeSantis out there taking tons of votes. The anti-Trumpers have just been unable to consolidate. And everyone's excited because Tim Scott got out. He was at 2%. Like, great, give her the whole 2%. <laughs> She still trails by 40 points nationally, and she's still for all the radical abortion things that the Republican Party is, is doing right now. So I think she's having her boomlet moment. She's having her moment that, that has been happening for a long time. Very rational people want her to be the nominee. But the Republican Party is not rational right now, and they're motivation-driven, and they're motivation-driven for Donald Trump. Can I ask you, um, back, to, back to this reporting on Jamie Dimon, you know, he's also said— um, you know, my, my heart is Democratic, but my brain is kind of Republican. Um, but this is a Democrat who thinks that this is someone who could unite the country, be good for the country. And when I go home to Minnesota, I hear it from a lot of folks who have not voted for a Republican before. And I get the primary issue is the key issue. But it's just a through line that I'm hearing, you know, from a lot of normal folks. And I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. Is this real in that respect? Sure. I mean, I think that, that people, I think this is very much a sort of center-right country, uh, and they're looking for somebody who's, who's a, a more of a radical centrist than the Republican Party's become. I mean, that's, that's the, the big problem for Republicans, is that there's such huge opportunity, and they're failing to rise to the challenge, and all they're doing is clawing their way to the bottom in Congress and showing that they can't govern, and, and that's going to help uh, Jim's party. Jim, do you view Nikki Haley as a radical centrist? No, I think in the end, her party has taken her so far to the right. Can I say, though, her message on abortion, which is different, I understand the policy. Yeah. But I'm saying the message, which she has 
said a couple times and then did it again at the debate. Does that, if you're a Democrat and you're watching that message, not the yeah. Glenn Youngkin message, not the Tim yeah. Scott message in Iowa, is that message problematic? No, because in the end, Americans keep saying over and over in all these referendums, stop taking away our freedoms. She wants to message it differently. Great, that's a nice message, and I agree, it's better than the other messages. But in the end, that's not where voters are. That's not what people in Minnesota are. They just want the Republicans to stop taking away their freedoms on the right to choose. And until they stop doing it, no messaging is going to fix that. Final thought on that, because I, we had Governor Pritzker on the other day and he took issue with me saying, well, that's not how Nikki Haley messages on abortion. And he took issue with it for the point that Jim is making. I will just say that we had James Carville uh, end our show uh, this last Sunday, and he said that the era of uh, strategic certainty is over. And the one thing that we know is whatever the hell is going to happen, it's going to surprise the hell out of us. Yep. <laughs> I like that quote. The era of strategic Carville's certainty Carville's been known to over. be able to have a clever quip. Do you think shit. it's the economy? What? Stupid. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Jim, Thank you, guys. Mark, Appreciate it. Jim, much. Mark, kick it. And seeing this morning continues right now. And happening right now, we're glad you're with us. We have this news. The Israeli military is launching an operation as we speak inside of Gaza's largest hospital, where thousands of civilians have been sheltering. This all comes as President Biden says he believes a deal with Hamas to release hostages is, quote, going to happen. Just hours from now, a face-to-face -face meeting between the world's most powerful rivals or competitors. President Biden is set to meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping as he tries to prevent tensions between the two from spiraling. Also this hour, we are about to find out how retail sales have been faring leading up to the crucial holiday season. So check on the economy. Much more ahead. This hour of CNN This Morning is now. And happening right now, Israeli troops carrying out an operation, an ongoing operation, inside Gaza's largest hospital, Al-Shifa. The Palestinian official says the soldiers entered the basement and ground floor of the hospital's surgery building and interrogated medical staff. The IDF releasing video claiming to show its troops dropping off aid at the hospital's entrance. CNN cannot independently verify this. We are not on the ground right now, and CNN has not been able to reach the hospital for confirmation. The IDF has accused Hamas of running a command center beneath the hospital and also using civilians above as human shields. The Israeli military is calling this a precise and a targeted operation based on their intelligence. We will be joined by a spokesperson for the IDF in just minutes. Meanwhile, here at home, FBI Director Christopher Wray is about to speak to Congress and issue a stark warning that the Israel-Hamas war has, quote, raised the threat of an attack against Americans in the United States to a whole other level. CNN's Evan Perez joins us now. Evan, we're going to see this testimony shortly. Uh, are you surprised by the level of concern that Ray appears to be about to tell lawmakers? Well, we've heard a lot, uh, Phil, from the FBI director in the weeks since the attack in uh, in southern Israel from Hamas. And one of the concerns that he's been raising is the issue of that is the issue of, of, of terrorism in the United States inspired by what happened in Israel. Uh, and of course, the, the, the threat level against uh, Jewish Americans, against Muslim Americans inside the United States. I'll read you just a part of his testimony where he says, uh, in a year where the terrorism threat was already elevated, the ongoing war in the Middle East has raised the threat of an attack against Americans in the United States to a whole other level. And he talks a little bit about the rogues gallery of, of terror organizations 
organizations. Uh, some of it, obviously Hamas and Hezbollah, supported by Iran, but other, but also Al Qaeda and ISIS, who are making threats against U.S. interests in the Middle East, again uh, uh, against uh, Americans in the United States. And the concern always is, of course, that someone will get through the the, the dragnet that sometimes the FBI tries to you know put in place to protect Americans in, in times like these. Evan, what about what, I mean, in the, to quote Christopher Ray in this, these prepared remarks, um, these multiple investigations into individuals affiliated with Hamas, I wonder if that was striking to you. It is. I mean, we've known, uh, Poppy, that the that Hamas has a presence in the United States. Supporters of Hamas have been here for, for many years. A lot of it has been focused on financing of Hamas. Uh, they've never really seen uh, an effort by Hamas to strike inside the United States. But they're doing, the FBI has been doing a reassessment of that in light of what happened in Israel on, on October 7th. And that's one of the things that you see here from the FBI directors, that they are investigating multiple people associated with groups, uh, not only Hamas, but other terrorist organizations in the United States. And it's something they do periodically, especially after a big event as what happened here, Phil and Poppy. Of course, you know, Republicans are going to ask questions about uh, Hunter Biden and other things. So you can bet this is going to be an interesting hearing. I think you're going to be busy today, Evan. Evan Perez, thank you as always. So later today, President Biden will sit down with Chinese President Xi Jinping near San Francisco. It is a highly anticipated meeting with very high stakes for the world. She is in the U.S. to attend the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. He landed in the Bay Area yesterday, and President Biden spoke about what he hopes to get out of this meeting. How would you define success with your meeting with President Xi? To get back on a normal course of corresponding, being able to pick up the phone and talk to one another if there's a crisis, being able to make sure our military still have contact with one another. We're not trying to decouple from China. But we're, what we're trying to do is change the relationship. Joining us now to discuss are Bobby Ghosh, Bloomberg editor and foreign affairs columnist, and Hagar Shamali, former spokesperson for the U.S. mission to the U.N. and host of the Oh My World web series, which is great, by the way. Um, uh, Bobby, that sounds like a low bar laid out by President Biden. But just to tick through what's happened since the two leaders met in Bali at the G20 last year. Uh, the U.S. shot down a Chinese spy balloon. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Commerce Secretary's emails were hacked. Secret Chinese police station was busted in New York City. Chinese tensions with Taiwan obviously have continued to ex- escalate as well as in the South China Sea. They also took away the pandas. Um, Phil is very <laughs> personally Good upset about yeah, We'll talk about that. I, I have a controversial view on this. But it has been a very, very difficult year for this relationship in a concerning manner. So the low bar, are, do you think that's enough? Well, it's essential for the world economy, for the security of the world, that two most powerful people should be able to get on the phone and speak to each other. It is a low bar, but as you say, this has been a year of incredible tension between the two sides. uh, She was practically ghosting Joe Biden earlier in the year. Um, You need to begin to talk before you can begin to address more important things. Now, the signals we're getting is that they are going to address some of the important things. So there's already talk of the fentanyl issue that that China will crack down on the on the factories and labs that produce the sort of uh, materials that go into making fentanyl. This is not a small thing. This is an important achievement. The the larger world audience will be looking for more than that, though. They'll be looking for a reassurance in a time when we have two raging wars going on, in a time when the the, the climate change crisis seems to be getting progressively worse and worse. 
we need the two most powerful men in the world to be able to communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, symbolically, that is not unimportant. Let me put it that way. It'd be great if they could get much more done. And we know that there's been weeks of negotiations on right. for, by, by officials of both sides before this meeting takes place. This meeting will last for a considerable period of time, several hours. Um, so we can, we can hope that something more meaningful be, would be achieved. But if it isn't, and if all we get out of this is they shake hands and agree to talk again, yeah. that's not a bad and thing. And our military is talking again, because in February, exactly. Lloyd Austin saying his counterpart would not pick up the phone. So that's key as well. I thought it was an interesting little nugget that they're not going to issue some joint statement. Each country will provide their own accounting of the meeting. And, and David Sanger is reporting in The New York Times that Chinese officials say she will look for assurance from Biden that the U.S., quote, does not seek a new Cold War. Right. I thought that was interesting. It is interesting because we've been trying to move away from that kind of rhetoric. Right. Right. And, and, to, be, and to be fair, while things have been extremely tense and cold, uh, particularly over the last year, as you, as you all laid out, uh, the, what undermines anyway the idea that we would even get to a Cold War is the fact that we have ongoing trade. China remains our largest and trade partner. And a lot partner. of it. Yes. And by the way, since 2018, meaning since President Trump's term, trade between the U.S. and China has only gone up. And a large part of that is because of U.S. exports to China. And that prevents things from getting too bad. But that said, the military-to-military channel is critical. And it shows you how bad things have become when even that is an achievement because we maintain military channels with all of our adversaries, for example, including Russia. The thing that I think is the most important that I see as this kind of milestone is that the Biden administration is trying to shift the general tone in the United States, in Washington, away from hawkish rhetoric, Mm -hmm. which has been the case for the last year, from both Republicans and Democrats, to something where uh, the Chinese don't feel defensive and where we have the groundwork to work together. But there is concern, Bobby, the House Select Committee on China sent a letter to Biden ahead of this saying that they're basically concerned that exactly what Gar is talking about comes at an unacceptable cost, they call, to our competitive or defensive actions that they say are being delayed by the Biden administration. Are there risks to that approach, too? Well, Biden has to walk that fine line, and and he is being attacked uh, at home for being soft on China. There is polling to suggest that Americans think that Trump would do a better job dealing with China than Biden. This is not a, uh, a happy situation for a president going into a re-election mm. uh, campaign. So he has, he has that problem. The, 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 to the point that David Sanger makes, China wants assurances. My colleagues at Bloomberg Opinion have also made the sort of really interesting point, which is that China's also looking for acceptance. She wants to be seen as a world leader. He wants Biden to acknowledge his role as a world leader. So part of the challenge for Biden is to, to give Xi, as the Chinese say, give him face, uh, allow him to, to, to behave like a world leader, while reminding him that that comes with responsibilities. You can't just, you know, swan around uh, uh, and, and say you're a world leader. You have to take some responsibilities for some of the world's problems. Um, to the point that, to your previous segment, there's a war going on in 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 between Israel and Hamas in the Middle East, China. Where is China? If you're a leader of the world, you need to take a role in trying to solve the world's problems. Especially given your relationship and actions with Iran and with Russia. Um, Thank you, Bobby. Thank you, Hagar. Great to have you. President Biden offering hope to families of hostages held by Hamas in Gaza, telling reporters he believes a deal is, quote, going to happen. And we are going to be joined by a father anxiously awaiting news about his eight-year-old daughter. And I went, yes! 
I went, yes, and smiled. Because that is the best news of the possibilities that I knew. When he believed that his daughter was not kidnapped and had been killed, well, weeks later, Israeli army said they believed Emily still alive and is a hostage now. Her father, Thomas, is with us. President Biden is expressing optimism about a potential deal to free some of the hostages held by Hamas, telling reporters yesterday he believes it's, quote, going to happen. Families of the Americans believed to be held hostage will meet with officials at the State Department and on Capitol Hill today. That comes after thousands of demonstrators filled the National Mall yesterday in the March for Israel, many of them showing support for those hostages. Now, the family of eight-year-old Emily Han, they are anxiously awaiting news. Emily, see her there, was initially believed to have been killed during the October 7th Hamas attacks, but is now believed to be among the 239 hostages. Before learning that his daughter was alive, Emily's father memorably, painfully told CNN's Clarissa Ward that her death was a better alternative than being held captive by Hamas. That was the best possibility that I was hoping for. She was either dead or in Gaza. And if you know anything about what they do to people in Gaza, that is worse than death. Emily's father was planning to bury his daughter alongside her mother, who died from cancer several years ago. And now he is waiting for a chance to hug his beautiful little girl. Emily turns nine this Friday. She won't even know what day it is. She won't know what day it is. She won't know it's her birthday. There'll be no birthday cake, no party, no friends. You'll just be petrified in a tunnel under Gaza. That's her birthday. Emily's father, Thomas Hand, is with us now. We have, Good morning. Good morning. We have been um, watching you, grieving with you, hoping for you. And now you are here in the fight of your life for your daughter, who turns nine on Friday. Tell us about that fight. Um, we've been working nonstop to put pressure on all, all the governments all over the world to do their, their best to get particularly my little Emily back home. She's, a, she's an Irish citizen, so we put a lot of pressure on the Irish government uh, to get her back. We're doing everything that we possibly can to to get her home and all the, all the hostages, at least, at least the children. They could start off with the babies and the children. They've got babies being kidnapped over there. Poppy makes, I think, such a salient point. All of us were very shaken when we watched your interview with Carissa Ward, yeah. I think, and then we kind of rode the roller coaster with you, obviously, to a significantly less degree when we saw your interview with Ed Lavendera where things had changed. Um, what has been the response to you? Because I can't imagine how painful and difficult it is to have to come out and talk about this. But I also imagine the support for what you've been saying uh, has been tremendous. Uh, the, the support worldwide is, is tremendous. Um, I've got people in Brazil sending me messages of comfort and support. Uh, yeah, the... The campaign is, is, is viral, I suppose you'd call it. Um, 
it's been great, the support that we're, we're being given. In the last 24 hours, President Biden had a lengthy call with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And President Biden came out of that call and said he believes it's, quote, going to happen. Does mm -hmm. that give you more hope that they're going to yeah, get out? Of course. Um, you know, America has a lot of influence all over the world. Uh, if he says that, obviously he knows more than I do. And uh, yeah, every, every little bit of information gives us hope that we can get uh, Emily and at least the children and babies out of Gaza. How often are you getting information, either from the Irish officials, the US officials? Very, very little. Mm. Um, nobody really knows anything. Um, I just, I know for a fact that she's not dead. I know for a fact that she was led away by the Hamas terrorists. There's eyewitness accounts of it. But someone saw her being led away. Her and her friend and her friend's mother. Can I ask you, say I know for a fact, and that is the reporting, but do you also feel it? You know, parents feel something with their children that is in, right, a bond like no other. Can you feel, Emily? No. Um... Now, uh, my feelings, I, I can't let my feelings interfere with uh, getting her back. It's, it's like a campaign. We just keep moving forward. I don't, I don't even see the interviews. I don't have time to, to look at the interviews. I don't watch the news. I haven't, I haven't got time for it. It's just full on, get Emily back. And to that point, Part of that is going to happen in Times Square, right here in the middle of New York, right? Yeah. What are you doing? Uh, big billboards of, uh, I guess, for sure, Emily. Uh, and marching on from there, just, just to keep Emily, uh, just to keep her alive um, in people's minds and hearts. Um, we mentioned, and you've spoken about her birthday on Friday, that yeah. be the billboards. Yeah. Kind of driving and not being able to stop and think. How much of that is because you have a, a goal here, because you have a, a true purpose in North Star, and how much of that is because you are, don't want to stop and think about what's going on right now? Yeah, uh, I can't. I, I, I actually keep her in a special place. Um, I don't want to imagine what she's going through every day for, what, 38 days now? Um, I can't think about it. it. It would be too painful. Uh, you know, she's down in the tunnels of Gaza with the Hamas. I don't want to think of what conditions she's in. Uh, how she's being treated, how she's being fed, how she's been, if she's being given water, and just uh, has she got toothbrush and toothpaste, um, toilet facilities. You know, these are tunnels underneath Gaza. I don't know. Could be like uh, the cattle, the train carts in Second World War. They were just all in a 
cattle car and uh, pee and poo where you stood. I don't know. I know um, you have said when you get her back, you will take her to Disney World and you will give her the world. And she is so lucky to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're, we're, uh, I'm not going to send her to school for at least a year. We're, we're going to give her the world. Just happy times. And, and fix her. You know, she's, she's not going to come back. None of them are going to come back the way they went in. They're going to be mentally and physically and emotionally broken. And that's going to take a lot of fixing. That's going to take a lot of time and energy and to fix her. But we, we'll do it. We'll, we'll do everything we can to fix her. We hope and pray for that moment when you get to give her the world anything you need or we can do to continue uh, to get the message out. Please just let us know. We're very grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you, sir. We'll be right back. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, new this morning, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin will not say if he will vote for President Biden in 2024. Listen. I think that's a, uh, it's, it's a hypothetical question, thinking, not knowing what we're going to have and who we're going to have. To make a choice right now, okay, let me just say I could not vote for Donald Trump. But you're not convinced you could vote for Joe Biden? Well, I, 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 want, I want President Biden. I would hope the changes would come. This comes as Biden is facing an uphill battle with a key group that helped put him in the White House, young voters in Georgia. Jeff Zeleny visited two colleges in Atlanta. He joins us this morning. He needs those votes. What did those young voters say? Hey, Poppy, good morning. You're right. I mean, young voters are a critical part of the piece that helped President Biden's winning coalition come together. But as we talk to young voters, the economy is on their minds. The war in the Middle East, also the president's age. People may not vote because they'll say, well, this happened under the Biden-Harris administration. As Kerry Singleton looks ahead to the next presidential election, he's thinking back to the promises he heard President Biden and Vice President Harris deliver on a visit to Atlanta. Pass the Freedom to Vote Act. Pass it now. On that winter day, the president was closing in on his first year in office. Hopes were high for Singleton and other students on the grounds of Clark Atlanta University and Morehouse College. Since then, voting rights legislation stalled. The Supreme Court rejected a student loan forgiveness plan. And high prices from food to housing are fueling economic anxieties. Uh, I do think that everyone is willing to hold the administration accountable for some of those promises that were made. And if they don't happen, I think it's going to be a scary election. For all the warning signs facing the president a year before the election, the skepticism and apathy of young voters rank high. Folks just feel poorer right now than they did two years ago. There's going to have to be a lot of conversations about how we feel like our issues are being heard. Nabila Islam Parks is the youngest woman to win a seat in the Georgia Senate. In 2020, she went door to door in the Atlanta suburbs, building a coalition to help Biden turn the state blue. That coalition, she said, could fracture by the president's handling of the Israel-Hamas war. I think that 
young voters recognize you can't bomb your way to peace and security. And so we do feel uncomfortable with that. Rachel Carroll's first vote for president went to Biden. She said she doesn't regret it given the alternative, but finds herself disappointed by some priorities of the White House. If they can fund a war, they can find the money to pay off our student loans. Young voters were a critical component of the president's victory, particularly here in Georgia, where Biden defeated Donald Trump by only 11,779 votes out of nearly 5 million cast. Exit polls in 2020 show that voters 18 to 29 made up 20% of the Georgia electorate, the only state of the top six battlegrounds where the percentage of young voters exceeded the national share of 17%. Biden won young Georgia voters by 13 points, according to exit polls. But now, a year before the 2024 election, surveys show a far closer race, with voters under the age of 30 here in Georgia split 46% for Trump and 44% for Biden, according to a New York Times Siena College poll. The excitement is not as high as it was last time. Alon Gibson and some of his classmates wish they had more inspirational and generational choices. We have to pick between two different people who are uh, very, very old and up in age. We would like to see Biden pass the baton. The vice president, whose college tour brought her back on campus this fall, resonates more. I think she, she sparks that energy. She's like, when she came to Morehouse, it was fun. I feel her passion. But with Biden at the top of the ticket, potentially facing a rematch of the 2020 race, voters say the burden rests on him to deliver on his promises and not take their support for granted. Just as well as we hold Trump accountable, you know, we have to hold Biden accountable. Now, some of the sentiment here is classic disappointment from a younger generation that the president is simply not progressive enough. But others, uh, some of the complaints are actually rooted in some serious economic concerns about affordable housing, child care, uh, the minimum wage and others. But the bottom line here is it's not a question of uh, if some of these students will vote for uh, for the president. Most of the ones we talked to said they reluctantly will. It's will others, perhaps non-college students, not be enthused to vote for him. But the bottom line to all this, the Biden campaign realizes they have a challenge here, and they said they want to make this a contrast election if Trump becomes the nominee against President Biden. It is so interesting and so important to hear from those voters. Jeff, thanks again for the great reporting. Now, here are five things to know for today. This morning, FBI Director Christopher Wray plans to warn the House Homeland Security Committee that the Israel-Hamas war has raised the threat of an attack against the U.S. to a, quote, whole nother level. His prepared remarks show that he will say the FBI has, quote, multiple investigations into individuals affiliated with Hamas. The First Lady of New Jersey, Tammy Murphy, announcing she's running for Democrat Bob Menendez's Senate seat. Menendez has not announced whether he will seek re-election after he was indicted in September on corruption-related charges. The NTSB is investigating after an Ohio charter bus full of high school band members was involved in a multiple vehicle crash that left six people dead. The victims include three students, two parent chaperones, and a teacher. The governor calling the accident, quote, our worst nightmare. Closing argument set to begin today in the federal trial of David DePap, the man accused of uh, taking a hammer to attack Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul. DePap tearfully testified Tuesday about how he came up with a plot to end U.S. corruption after being absorbed in conspiracy theories involving Donald Trump. 
And Congress now on the path to averting a government shutdown for now. After House lawmakers passed Speaker Mike Johnson's two-step stopgap measure on Tuesday, the bill is now expected to pass with bipartisan support in the Senate before going to President Biden, who has signaled he will sign the measure. And that's the five things you need to know for this morning. Don't forget to download the Five Things podcast every morning. And ahead, the IDF entering the Al-Shifa hospital overnight in Gaza. This is part of their, quote, targeted operation against Hamas. There are reports of tanks and active firefighting going on inside the complex now. And we'll be joined by a spokesperson for the IDF next. Happening right now, Israeli defense forces have launched a targeted military operation inside against Hamas inside of Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital. That is where thousands of Palestinians have been sheltering. A Palestinian journalist tells CNN there has been intense gunfire as soldiers search the complex and interrogate young men. The IDF just released this video claiming to show soldiers this is them delivering aid to the hospital's entrance. And the Red Cross says reports coming in from Al-Shifa are very worrying. Let's get all the details of this ongoing operation. We're joined by IDF's international spokesman, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht. Thank you very much for joining us, Lieutenant Colonel. Can you update us on what the IDF has been able to accomplish in terms of taking out uh, Hamas operatives and also if any Palestinian uh, civilians, patients in the hospital have been killed as a result? So it's a bit more complicated than that, Poppy, and thanks for having me. We last night launched a very, very precise and targeted operation. I heard before in your comments that there's tanks inside the hospital. That's not the case. It was specific special forces that went in based on intelligence to search for certain things. It's, it's happening as we speak. Uh, as you mentioned, we also had medical teams. We had Arabs, Arabic speakers. And we also came with some humanitarian equipment, food, incubators. We're not fighting the people in the hospital. There was no engagement whatsoever with the patients. We went into certain areas mm-hmm. inside the hospital. And just to be clear, this was from a Palestinian journalist who reported on tanks inside the courtyard. For people who don't know, this is a very large facility. Uh, to your point, Lieutenant Colonel, in terms of the, the precision effort and what you were searching for, there were reports this morning uh, that the search for hostages uh, showed that there were no hostages. Uh, the other element of this is you have depicted, you've had illustrations that depicted a tunnel shaft from inside the hospital uh, toward the underground utilized by Hamas. Have you found hostages and have you found uh, that shaft or or a passageway underground? This mission uh, wasn't focused uh, on hostages. Uh, We were focused on bringing intelligence and uh, uh, dismantling certain capabilities that we had intelligence on. It was something that was very, very focused. Um, And we we went in in a very sort of cautious way into the hospital. Um, there'll be more information coming out on what uh, we find during the day. Can you give us some of that reporting? I think it's important for people to understand as you're going into a hospital what you accomplished. So um, we find certain things. Uh, that's all I can say at this stage. Uh, we understand Why? that there's a substantial Hamas infrastructure in the area, in the vicinity of the hospital, potentially under the hospital, and it's something we're working on. It'll take us time. This war is a complex war. We, we went in, in, in taking very, very uh, cautious actions and again into a very specific area inside the hospital. To it the- wasn't an all-out attack. When, when we came in today, 
uh, there was they engaged with some uh, uh, there was fire exchange before we went into the hospital. Uh, we engaged with the uh, enemy uh, before we entered, and since we were in the hospital, there was uh, uh, no engagement whatsoever inside the hospital uh, at this moment uh, with the with the patients or uh, anyone else. So just to put a finer point on that, there have been no firefights, there have been no exchange of gunfire inside the actual hospital itself? Correct. And then to follow, there have been reports that individuals have been detained uh, and interrogated uh, that would track with what a special, op, uh, special force operation would entail. Can you confirm that that has happened? There have been individuals from inside the hospital that have been detained and interrogated. So I'm sure that when they went in, they exchanged uh, uh, or some of the forces. If they saw someone was suspicious, they talked to him. I'm not aware at this point of uh, someone being detained. I'll have to go back and check if uh, our forces uh, uh, did such an action. I'm sure if they did it, it needed to be done. We uh, showed our viewers a video of IDF forces bringing in supplies, particularly for babies in the hospital, including incubators. I know you also came in, according to the IDF, with medical teams and Arabic speakers. But I, I really think everyone wants to have an update on what the Egyptian health ministry uh, says was, was, is 36 newborns that were being held there uh, in the NICU uh, at El Shifa Hospital um, and they were trying to bring them to Egypt. Can you confirm if those babies safely got out of the hospital and where they are? I can't confirm that yet. I know that there's been extensive talks, uh, not in the channel, in my channel of the IDF, to try and uh, assist these, uh, the movement of the babies. We've been talking to international players, also to uh, the Red Cross, also to the hospital management, to try and solve this issue with the babies. Um, I know today that uh, there's going to be fuel entering uh, to the UN uh, facilities inside the Gaza Strip. So again, we understand that this humanitarian aid mm -hmm. is allowing us to take care of Hamas. We're not targeting civilians. It's important always to say that. And I know we're, we're a bit repetitive on it, but it's important for us to say. Please, please just please update everyone when you do know the condition of those 36 babies. And just you mentioned fuel. Um, a U.S. official did tell CNN yesterday that U.N. trucks are expected to bring fuel into southern Gaza for the first time since October 7th. Will Israel allow that in? The answer is yes. Uh, it's been coordinated and I, I'm aware, again, it's not a military decision, but I'm aware that okay. this is uh, going into the Gaza Strip today. Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht, thank you. Thank you for having me. And joining us now is retired Army General David Petraeus. He's a former CIA director and commander of U.S. Central Command. He's also the co-author of the new book, Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare and from 1945 to Ukraine. Um, very happy you're here to start with. I want to talk about bigger picture in a moment, but to start with what you heard there as somebody has, who has overseen, planned, been a part of special operations uh, missions, if you will, this is being described as something that you would send operators in, they keep saying precision, uh, no gunfire exchanged inside the hospital itself. Based on what you heard, do you have a sense of what this operation actually has entailed? Yeah, they've got to secure a hospital. Uh, again, remember when we first talked about this operation, that if you're going to destroy Hamas, you have to clear every building, every floor, every room, every cellar, every tunnel, every structure, including hospitals. When we cleared Fallujah for the final time, and that was during the surge in Iraq, the first facility we secured was actually the hospital. 
We wanted to keep it functioning, and we wanted to ensure that it was not a source of disinformation as it had been uh, in the past. So again, every single facility is going to have to be cleared and then secured. By the way, this does allow them now also to help the, f the facility keep operating. Yeah. Once you have a corridor in uh, from Israel, then you can presumably take in, as they did here, uh, the kinds of humanitarian supplies and incubators and other essential elements to enable the hospital to function. They don't have to close it down once they secure it. Mm -hmm. They do have to, of course, figure out, is there a tunnel down to a command center, which is what they've said is underneath or near the hospital, they now say. But this is all part of a major clearing operation. This is really a combination of a conventional and a special uh, operation in that the targeted piece is the special operators trying to figure out are there hostages, are there individuals aiding and abetting Hamas in here. But the bigger issue is the conventional forces that have to clear this and then hold it because you have to continue to hold and then move on. You can't just clear and leave. You have to hold it. You have to leave soldiers behind. You have to facilitate it and so forth. And that's what consumes soldiers uh, in huge numbers in urban operations. You famously, now famously, asked the critical question when you engage in a conflict, and that is, tell me how this ends. That was you in Iraq. That was early on, yeah. It was early on. Tell us how this ends, because it was just last week that you said the reoccupation of Gaza by Israel is almost definitely inescapable. I think it is. Uh, again, the way we'd like it to end would be to see a competent, capable, reliable, uh, honest Palestinian entity come over from the West Bank and impose itself or establish itself uh, in Gaza, noting that, of course, they were run out of Gaza by Hamas back in 2007 after an election in 2006. Uh, that's what you'd like to see. And you'd like to see all the structures so that they could oversee the humanitarian assistance, restoration of basic services, reconstruction of damaged infrastructure, and resettlement of all these people that have been uh, moved around in Gaza. I just don't see that happening. To be truthful, you don't have a competent, capable, completely trustworthy Palestinian authority in the West Bank. Um, so that's the big question. But even beyond that, even if you could find an organization that could do that, who is actually going to keep an eye on Hamas and keep them from reconstituting? We've learned the hard way. If you take your eye off an extremist organization, the Islamic State, after we left and the Iraqis took their eye off it, two years later, there was a caliphate. And again, this is akin to the Islamic State, Hamas is. This is an extremist army, if you will. It does have to be destroyed, but then there has to be an eye and pressure on that. That's the real question. But but I what I look forward to is hearing what the vision is for the Palestinians in Gaza. Even as you yeah. work out who is going to administer the restoration of basic services, are you going to make life better for them? Can you separate the Palestinians from the extremists? That's a huge question that I think That's does That's what King Abdullah is saying in the Washington he, and he, Post. And he's exactly right on that. And there should be yeah. a vision for the Palestinians in the West Bank as well. That's part of what is going on here, needless to say. Given the, the weakness you alluded to, do you think it was a mistake for Secretary of State Antony Blinken to point to the Palestinian Authority as a likely or feasible uh, entity to fill the vacuum in Gaza? I just fear that this is much more aspirational than realistic, frankly. Uh, again, no one sees that entity. No one also sees an Arab entity coming together that would stand up and take this. You see a lot that are willing to contribute in various ways. But this is, this I think, you? well, not Did entirely. You for last weekend no, summit that nobody's stepping in? Not entirely. I mean, first of all, the Palestinians don't want to be seen as riding in on the tanks of Israel, right. uh, nor do many of the Arab countries, by the way. They want to see Hamas destroyed, by the way. They fear Hamas. Uh, and Muslim brothers and political Islam extremists very, very much, just as do the Israelis. But 
they're not necessarily eager to go in and be responsible for what will follow, given the enormous amount of destruction and displacement that will have taken place at that point. Is there a lesson from the early 80s and Israel's operation inside Lebanon and what that did to essentially be part of what birthed Hezbollah? To, to some for, for now, yes, in terms of to, how, how Israel responds to Hezbollah now? To some degree, although with respect to Hezbollah, which has an enormous force, 150,000 rockets and missiles and so forth, deterrence seems to be operating. And that's really more a function of not back then. It was the 2006 war in which Israel really hammered uh, Hezbollah, set back their infrastructure for a decade or more. They're still repairing certain pieces of it. And I think that's what's keeping mm. Hezbollah from mm. what a lot of us see would be an act of suicide if they were to use all the capabilities that they had against Israel. General David Petraeus, um, grateful for your expertise. Thanks, Thanks so much for coming on. Congrats again on the book for yes, anyone author. who has not read it. It's very good. New retail numbers, U.S. economy, how's it doing? We'll have a check on that ahead of the holiday season. Are you shopping? That is the question. New U.S. retail sales numbers just released. Americans cut their retail spending a little bit in October. First cut since March with interest rates at a 22-year high. Here with us to look at the numbers, CNN business correspondent Rahel Solomon. How are you doing? Good Hi, good morning. So people are shopping a little bit less. So showed, this report showed that shopping and retail sales fell by one-tenth of a percent. We have been expecting something closer to three-tenths of a percent um, on a year-over-year basis. Still higher retail sales by about two and a half percent. Now, I should say that these figures, these numbers are not adjusted for inflation. So sort of just keep that in mind. Now, when you look under the hood of the car, you sort of look at the details, you can actually see uh, where people are still shopping. So we continue to see growth. Restaurants, bars, people are apparently still going out. Uh, online shopping, we saw some modest increases. I do want to show you, though, just how this compares to the last few months. So uh, by and large, and Poppy, how many times have you and I talked about the strong consumer spending? Yeah. You see it month after month after month. Now, last month, October, we saw that decline. Few reasons why. A lot of people are... Uh, paying back their student loans. That is new. Um, a lot of people have dwindled their excess savings that a lot of people had accumulated during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. That has come to an end. We have seen credit card balances start to increase. So this isn't necessarily a huge surprise. Many people were expecting a softer number. We also saw in this report uh, furniture that fell. You mm. can think about what's happening in housing. Yeah, Not a lot of people are buying houses right now. So you saw that also automotive that fell as well. And saving, I think, for their kids' Christmas lists. Yeah, Probably right around the corner. For the holiday. Thank <laughs> yeah. you, Rahel. Appreciate the reporting. Phil. Well, coming up, a historic moment for St. Paul, Minnesota. Great state, I've heard. The newly elected city council is all female and all under 40. You see them there, what they have to say about this historic moment. That's next. the best story of the day and of course it's from minnesota history being made in st paul minnesota voters have elected the first ever all-female city council these are the seven council members elect six of them women of color all of them by the way younger than me under the age of 40 the top four women on your screen newly elected they join the other three women below who were re-elected in a statement they said quote starting in january 24 the St. Paul City Council will be entirely composed of women from diverse racial, cultural, and religious backgrounds and majority women of color making it the youngest, most progressive, and most diverse in St. Paul's history. And now to the best story of the day, the latest college football playoff. I already playoff. said this that. Is, 
First off, this is a trap. I'm going to tell you what. See, look at the next line. I know. I am happy to say the Georgia Bulldogs have regained the. I'm not happy about that. I'm ambivalent. (laughs) Maybe you should read your copy first, Mattingly. You wouldn't let. No one gave it. This is a trap. (laughs) Georgia obviously crushing Ole Miss this weekend. That, of course, means Ohio State, which I do deeply care about, drops down a spot to number two. Only got to be in the top four. Michigan, they're having a great time right now. Real victim complex is number three. Of course, Michigan and Ohio State play each other the Saturday after Thanksgiving. I will be unreachable during that period of time. Can I just say, after a bunch of white dudes really covered themselves in glory on Capitol Hill yesterday, I really appreciate what St. Paul's doing? Yes, very to much. Give women some power, see what happens? Maybe, I'm just saying perhaps, based on anecdotal evidence of one day on Capitol Hill, not a terrible because idea. Because of that, I'm going to root for Ohio for you. Ohio State. I'll watch the game. Oh, sorry, Ohio State. Thanks for joining us. See you here tomorrow. CNN New Central is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.